Thank you, Paul, for that. All right, well, go and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Last week, we reviewed the ground we had covered up to our little break for... Uh, from 1 Thessalonians to spend some time in the series on respectable sins. And we caught ourselves back up to speed last week. So with that, we've completed verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's the outline we've been using. So with this week, we'll move on to verse 3, which corresponds to lesson 2 in the outline here. So this outline has been framing up our work through verses 2 through 7 over numerous weeks, and we'll be in verse or lesson 2 today. And as we look at Paul's thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonians, we're observing that this thanksgiving reveals Paul's priorities. What was important to Paul, obviously in his own life, but also in the lives of others, Priorities he wants the Thessalonians to have, we noted last week. He's pointing these things out to them, saying, here are reasons I'm giving thanks to God. And by doing so, he's telling them these are important things. These are valuable things. And therefore, we're taking this as a model for our own priorities. So let's start, as we get back in here, by reading these verses, reading verses 2 through 7. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 1. And remember, as I read this, I'm going to kind of give a little bit of interpretation, an interpretive reading, we might say, as we go, just to help you track with the flow of thought. Beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always concerning all of you as we mention you in our prayers. And we're giving thanks to God always concerning all of you because... We are incessantly remembering your work motivated by faith and your labor motivated by love and your perseverance motivated by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. So that was the first reason he gives thanks. Now a second reason he gives thanks. Because we know, brothers, beloved by God, your election. And he says we know that because our gospel did not come to you in word only. But it came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what sort of people we were among you for your sake. And now a second way that he knows uh, of their election, you became imitators of us and of the Lord by means of receiving the word in much affliction with joy provided by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example of to all who are believing in Macedonia and in Achaia. So within this, you see that verse 3 fits into the paragraph as the first of Paul's two reasons for giving thanks to the Lord. You could say the reasons he gives thanks or even kind of what he's giving thanks for. It's the content of his thanks. So you see that verse 3 is the first one here. He thanks God for them because he remembers their work of faith, labor of love, endurance of hope. And then verse 4, he gives the second reason, which continues on through verse 7. And that is because he knows they're among God's elect 
in verses 5 through 7, provides the evidence of their election. You might ask, you know, we'll get here in a moment, but how could you possibly know someone's elect, Paul? And he says, well, because you responded to the gospel as only someone in whom the Holy Spirit's working could respond. We're seeing the effect in your life. So you can see those two reasons first in verse three, and that's our lesson number two. And then in verses four through seven, the two different two separate reasons he gives. So now as we jump in here, we're going to get into verse two or uh, lesson two. Are you hot? Last time you were the one who said, no, no, don't adjust it. Is anyone else feeling hot? No? Really? You guys aren't? Okay. Really? I Great. This is good. Tremendous. Let's keep going. It does feel a little warm, but don't worry about me. <laughs> All right. Sorry for the little interjection there. Got to make sure you guys are comfortable so you aren't falling asleep. Okay. So let's jump back in here. Just continuing to keep us oriented to why we're spending time unpacking the pieces of verse 3. If these three things Paul identifies in verse 3, and let me just go and expand this for us here. Um, You can see the three things he mentions in verse 3, the three, what can we say, varieties of grace-motivated fruitfulness. If these three things are worth giving thanks for, or maybe to say it another way, if these three things are... Uh, praiseworthy things in the life of a believer, then we'll do well to understand as well as we can what they are, right? These things are praiseworthy things like believe. Let's understand what they are. Let's understand what they're going to look like in practice. Do you guys ever find that you look at a little phrase, work of faith, and it seems like that just needs to be unpacked, right? How do, what does that look like in my own life? So what is this going to look like in our lives? And then we got to get after that, pursuing these things. So that's what we're going to do today. And I've shown you here the three broken out. Uh, we're just going to focus today on the first one, faith-motivated work. And when you read work, don't think day job. And that's how we often use the word, right? I'm going to work. I had to stay late at work. Had to had to do work over the weekend, right? It usually means my day job. Don't think that here. This is broader. Uh, You could think good deeds. Good deeds, another way we could translate this. Or service. Those are all kind of a bit looser ideas, but that's the idea here, right? Work more generically. And we'll get around to a little bit later what, what specific things Paul likely has in mind here. But you might think of it basically as anything you would do in service of Christ. Anything you would do in service of Christ. We'll unpack that later, but just to keep you somewhat oriented there for now. So the text, as I said, just it begs to be unpacked, right? Work of faith. What does this mean? And so we're going to ask some questions of the phrase, and that's how we'll structure our time this morning. Unpacking it around answering these questions. So we're just going to focus in here on faith-motivated work, and the rest of our time will be around this phrase. And here are the questions. I'm going to give them to you up front, and then we'll work back through them. First, first question, what is the relationship between faith and work? The text just says work of faith. So we can see there's a relationship between two of them. That's what the little of preposition between them indicates. There's some kind of relationship, but it's pretty ambiguous. 
It begs to be unpacked. What is that relationship? And as you can see from the outline, I've already kind of given you my take on it, that the work of faith is a work motivated by faith. The faith is what's driving, incentivizing the, the work. But that leads to another question. How does faith motivate work? How does faith motivate work? But it's hard to answer this question without answering another question, which is what does Paul mean by faith? The scriptures can use faith in a variety of ways. Sometimes we'll see things like the faith, referring to, you know, Christianity, the Christian faith, certain body of doctrine. Sometimes it refers more so to our trusting God in certain situations or trusting certain propositions, truths about God. So what does Paul mean by faith here? Faith in whom? Faith about what? But these two questions are so closely related that we'll hold them together. Rather than separating them out, we're going to keep them together and try to answer them as a piece, as a pair. And then the third question, to what kinds of things is Paul referring when he says work or good deeds or service? If this is a model for us, we're to be getting after this work. Well, within Paul's way of thinking, Paul's teaching within biblical ways of thinking, what, what would be there? What would be included there? And certainly we're not going to be exhaustive there, but want to point you in a direction. So if we answer these three questions, we'll be well positioned to imitate this example by growing in the area of service motivated by faith, a, 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 um, something to be a priority for us, something that's praiseworthy. And as I mentioned, we're going to separate them out, but in some sense, they kind of all run together, right? It's a small phrase, and I want to microanalyze it too much, but we're going to try to break it out a bit just for the sake of giving us some structure as we work through this. So now let's go back to number one and start working through this. Number one's brief. I pretty much already answered it for you. The relationship is that faith is what motivates the work. It's the incentive. Faith is the incentive for the work. The Thessalonians were serving because of what they believed. What they believed motivated them to act. So if faith, if what we believe motivates us to work, that then leads to the second question. How does faith motivate work and what does Paul mean by faith? Well, pretty simply stated, by faith, Paul simply means believing the Lord as he has revealed himself in the Bible, including his promises, warnings, etc. So faith, he simply means believing the Lord as he's revealed himself in the Bible, including things like the promises he's given, the warnings he's given. And this faith motivates work like this. Let's just tease this out a bit, right? When the Lord gives a command to do something and then follows it with a promise, so gives a command and then follows with a promise associated with obedience, we will be motivated to obey the command really only if we believe what's promised, right? Granted, we could have ulterior motives for wanting to do what the Lord's calling us to do. But generally speaking, we're going to be motivated to do what he commands us to do because we believe him when he gives that promise related to that command. Or the, the reverse side with prohibitions and warnings, 
If the Lord warns us not to do something and then follows that warning with a, a warning about what would happen, if we do that, then we're going to be motivated to keep the prohibition to not do what's prohibited if we believe that the bad thing's actually going to come about. Are you guys seeing that connection there? That seems really rather elementary, so I'll try not to belabor that, but I want to make sure that's clear. Let's just look at two, consider two illustrations here. The first one would be biblical. The second one would be taken from everyday life. First one comes from a, a favorite text of mine, Genesis 3. I know we go there often, but it's so paradigmatic for how we, how we function. In Genesis 3, we find that the Lord gave Adam and Eve the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he accompanied that command by a warning. What did he say would happen if they eat from that tree? You will surely die. That's right. And then the serpent slithers along, and when he wants to tempt them to do the very thing the Lord prohibited, notice his strategy. He, he's, a, he's a pretty smart guy. Like he, he knows what's going on. He knows the critical link between faith and what we do. And so he begins to undermine their faith in the warning. He says, basically, will you really die? Right? The Lord says, if you eat, you will die. The serpent says, you surely will not die. Notice how he goes directly at the motivation for obedience. That's the way he functions. So what's the point of the example? What we believe motivates what we do. What we believe motivates what we do. If Adam and Eve believe that eating will bring death, they won't eat. If they doubt that eating will bring death and actually think that God's withholding something good from them, that their best is actually found in eating, then they're going to eat. What we believe motivates what we do. Here's an illustration from everyday life. Many of you work two weeks at a time without a single penny of pay. Two weeks at a time without any pay. Doing something you wouldn't do if you weren't paid for it. And yet you do it without being paid for it. But all because you have confidence, or we might say faith, that you will be paid for it, right? I don't need to be paid for it now because I'm confident I will be paid. So that faith that you will be paid, that there's a payday coming, motivates what you do, right? Two weeks is like optimistic too. These days with payroll and all, you still got to process the payroll. It's like... The Friday almost three weeks later from the day you first started working. But the point is, we believe, and that motivates what we do. So, if the key to us doing the work the Lord would have us to do is believing what he says, it's going to be helpful to drill down a little bit. On the one hand, we can get really specific. And this is a part of following Christ, getting specific about what are the promises I need to believe to obey as the Lord would have me in this moment, right? When you're, when you're facing a temptation, we need to think about what are those specific promises. When a, when a doctor's just simply told very generically that someone has a bacterial infection, they're going to opt for certain bacterial, sorry, broad spectrum antibiotics to give that will likely address that. But if they have some more specific information, they can be more pointed, right? They can get something that's going to target that. So 
It's similar. We want to grow in being more specific, knowing specifically what truths. But at this level, I may give you some more, think of them as the broad spectrum antibiotics, to more generally address a lot of common areas, and particularly, more generally kind of will motivate us to work. That's what we have in view here, right? Promises, truths, that when we believe them will motivate us to do the work Christ would have us to do. So I'm just going to pick three here, and we'll unpack these. I want you to make sure you're seeing that this connection. If you find yourself, and I'll work out some more of the implications here, but if you find yourself kind of find yourself lazy, struggling to get after, struggling to be useful, struggling to be diligent, where should you look? Scripture? Where else? What motivates work? Faith. Yeah. So are we believing what God says? Because that, if we are, then that will be motivating us to be doing good deeds, to be engaging ourselves in that. So if we aren't, that's the route we have to go back to. That's the connection I want us to be seeing. So let's start unpacking some of those truths. Common truths that will motivate good deeds. First, we must believe there is a judgment coming with reward for well-doing and that the outcome of that judgment matters far more than anything in the present. We must believe there is a judgment coming with reward for well-doing and that the outcome of that judgment matters far more than anything in the present. For those of you who are taking notes and you find yourself panicking like, with the next swipe, will that all be gone? <laughs> I'll put all three up here, okay? <laughs> so you have some time here. And we'll spend probably the next, I don't know, 20 minutes at least working through these three. So you have some time. Here's the subtle lie we might be tempted to believe. No one notices the good I do, therefore it's not worth it. No one notices the good I do, therefore it's not worth it. But that's not true. Just take one example. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6? Your heavenly Father sees what is done in secret and what? Will reward you. Your heavenly Father sees what is done in secret and will reward you. If you believe that truth, if we believe that truth, it will motivate us to work even in secret, that is, even without people noticing and appraising us for what we do, or even just thanking us for what we do. And it won't matter one bit whether anyone notices and thanks you, because the Lord's delight in your work and your confidence that he will reward you in the future is far more important. This could be worked out in a variety of contexts. Let's just think in the domestic sphere, in the home. Men... I hope you're working hard to provide for your families. But whether anyone else notices or thanks you is a small matter. The Lord notices and will reward you. Ladies, I know you work hard at caring for your families, taking care of your whole home, caring for your husbands, meals, dishes, laundry, cleaning, shopping, and the list goes on. And you get thanked for but a small fraction of those things. And yet, you're tempted, I should say you are tempted, to think no one notices all of this. In fact, the only thing that they notice is when something doesn't get done, right? And yet, the Lord notices every bit of that and has promised 
that he will reward you. And when you believe that, that's more than enough to keep you joyfully working. We can, that's in the domestic sphere. We can apply this in the context of the church. Serving in the nursery or children's ministry can be a difficult and thankless job. <laughs> but you will be motivated to do it if you believe that your heavenly father notices, delights in your work, and will reward you for it at the judgment. That will motivate you to persevere. Discipling others can be a thankless work. You might work for months with someone ensnared to sin, only to have them tell you that battling the sin is too much work, and if this is what Christ requires, they would rather have their sin than Christ. After having invested for so much time, and what, what do you get for it? You get a heavenly father who delights in the work you've invested and will reward you for that. You might work with a brother or sister in Christ whose life is being deeply affected by their wrong ways of thinking, but they just keep insisting on blaming it on external circumstances. And, and they suggest that you're being cruel by suggesting they've contributed to their circumstances by their wrong way of thinking. And you're thinking, I'm just trying to help here and point you to the scriptures. But now I feel like the enemy. Remember, the Lord knows if you've been faithful to his word, he delights in that. You coming alongside and caring for one of his, his children. And he will reward you. Yes, discipling others can be thankless work. But believing that not a single moment of love, not a single moment of love practically expressed for the bride of Christ will be overlooked or forgotten on the last day will motivate you to serve. So one biblical text to keep in mind that we just kind of taken and fleshed out in a variety of areas is Matthew 6, right? Your heavenly father sees what's done in secret and will reward you. I'm just going to give you one more that we won't apply quite so exhaustively, but Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, Paul writes, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Can you see how doing good is motivated by believing that there is a future judgment coming with reward. Believing this truth means believing there's a coming kingdom beyond the resurrection, such that now is the time for diligent service, even at great cost to ourselves. Trusting that God will reward this in the future. Just consider the life of Paul. Just consider the life of Paul. Why would Paul travel all around the Mediterranean, seemingly with reckless abandon, not counting his life as dear to himself, willing to die at any moment, even when he wasn't being killed, regularly paying a cost in terms of taking beatings, all for the sake of working for the mission of Christ? I think it's helpful to stop and ask, what drives a man to do that? What is he believing that keeps him going in that way. Because he believed that Christ will return, resurrect the dead, renew creation, and those who are Christ will reign with him forever. He believed that. He lived with an eye to the future judgment, 
when our work for the sake of the mission of Christ will be taken into account. It won't be overlooked. It will be taken into account. A time when the trivialities that often take up a good bit of our time will be seen to be worthless as they really are. And when we will wish that we had lived a trimmed down, lean life, laser focused on what will matter at the final judgment. Believing that's coming motivates diligent labor for the cause of Christ in the present. So as we think about the priority of good deeds motivated by faith, one important truth to believe is that there is a judgment coming with reward for well-doing and that the outcome of that judgment matters far more than anything in the present. (coughs) A second truth. A second truth that will help us, that will motivate good deeds. Diligence in the work Christ would have you to do leads to joy in flourishing in the present. Diligence in the work Christ would have you to do leads to joy in flourishing in the present. So what I'm, just to put this in context of the first one, what I'm suggesting is that our living the Christian life is not embracing misery for the entirety of our life until Christ returns, until the resurrection, but doing it simply because we believe good is coming. Sometimes following Christ makes our life harder. But there's also the truth that God's instructions lead to the good life. And that's the piece I'm drawing out here. God's instructions lead to the good in the life. The way of obedience is the way of blessing. When whoever wrote the first psalm speaks of that tree, that tree firmly planted by streams of water, who yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, is one who in the present is rooted in God's instructions, right? That motivates flourishing in fruitfulness and blessing for himself and for others in the present. That's the truth I'm drawing out here. I don't want us only to be looking forward to the coming judgment, but also to realize, believe that the good life is found in obeying the Lord. Ladies, for you, this look, might look like believing there is more joy to be had in the toil of lovingly caring for your families and serving the church than there is in cutting corners, doing the bare minimum, or whatever else you need to do to ensure you have as much me time as possible. There's more joy to be had in the first. Men, for you, this might look like believing there's more joy to be had In the long hours of rising early to be in the word, learning to think biblically, being ready to shepherd your families, scheduling time for prayer each morning. Then when you go to work, being diligent at work, not cutting corners there because other people do and they seem to get away with it. Coming home and rather than relaxing, helping your wives, spending time playing with your kids, taking time to instruct your children in the word of God. Maybe it means giving up hobbies so that you can meet with other men for the sake of discipling them. Spending some time on Saturdays, helping around the church with practical projects. Men, believing this truth 
means believing that believing the Lord that what I've just described is the good life. That that is the way to joy. That there is so much more joy to be had in that than there is in abandoning your responsibilities for the sugar-coated poison pills the world has to offer. That flows out of believing what the Lord has said. And when that's the case, the, the lures of the world lose all their power. The, the barbs, the hooks are exposed for what they really are by believing the truth. The lie to be avoided here is the idea that, this is a bit of a compound lie, so track with me, with me lest you think that I'm actually got done with the lie, I'm now asserting what the rest of the lie. Here's the lie. The way of obedience is, sorry, the way of disobedience is actually more enjoyable. The only problem is that God, that cosmic killjoy, threatens to damn us in the end if we enjoy these good things. Right? That's the lie that's put forward. If only we could do that, but God, for some reason, because of his cruelty, keeps us from those things. That's a lie. If you believe that, you'll begin trying to get away with as little work, as little service as you can, and give your time, money, and energy to serving yourself. We're prone to believe the lie that our greatest happiness will come when we watch out for ourselves. When we serve ourselves, when we ensure that we get what we want, the experiences we want, the relationships we want, the material things we want. But God says the greatest, our greatest good comes when we lay down our lives to serve others. We've got to believe that. Do we believe that? Whether or not you believe that will determine whether or not you make a priority of doing good, of serving others. Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 10 when it seems maybe Peter found himself at this point of questioning these, these very truths. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Essentially, there's a lot of sacrifice involved here, Jesus. Is there any, anything to, to reward us for this? Is there anything good to come out of this? Or is it all give, 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 give? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has their sacrifice to be made, right? He's going to recount some of those or enumerate some of those. There's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but he will receive a hundred times as much now. Notice that. That's where the second point's coming from. Pick up on the now aspect of the blessings of obedience. He will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. But here's the realism, right? Along with persecutions, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I want you to see that both of these truths, truth number one, that there's a coming judgment in which will be rewarded, and truth number two, that... Obedience to the Lord results in flourishing in the present. We have to hold those together. Do you see how Jesus held those two together? He didn't choose to simply be fueled by one or the other. He held both together. Believing that, that diligently getting after the work the Lord has given us 
will bring joy and blessing in the present is one of the truths that will motivate your work. How about a third truth? Sorry, this one's a bit longer. You'll have time to write it down. Third truth. The most important thing happening in the world is Christ building his church. And I real quickly kind of filled that out a little bit. Saving sinners and maturing them in local churches. And we all have an important part to play in this. That's the truth. The most important thing happening in the world is Christ building his church, that is, saving sinners and maturing them in local churches. And we all, all of us, have an important part to play in this. Let me give a little caveat before I go further, lest I, I'll say lest I be misunderstood, but let me take responsibility for being clear. Lest I confuse you. When I say the most important thing is this, I don't mean to exclude things like, and I'm trying to keep the balance here in terms of like the implications I'm giving you. I don't mean to include, exclude things like caring for your families, being faithful at work. I actually see all of that included here in that second part, maturing them in local churches. Part of a local church, uh, uh, sorry, a follower of Christ's maturity is... They take their responsibilities seriously. They're faithful with all of their responsibilities. They're faithful in the workplace. They're faithful in the home. So I I mean that to all be included here. To press this piece home a bit more, why does the sun come up each morning? From one angle, the sun comes up each morning, continues to come up morning after morning, morning, Because the mission of Christ is not yet complete. Why did the sun come up this morning? The mission of Christ is not yet complete. And that's a mission he's left for us to do. It's his mission that he's given to his church, to us, to complete. And I'm going to come back under our third question about what does this work entail to talk a bit more about what's involved in our part in the mission of Christ But for now, I want you to see how reorienting your perspective in this way around this truth about the centrality of Christ's mission to build his church, how this will motivate you to work for the advance of that mission. When you believe this truth, you will prioritize doing what you can to advance that mission, regardless of what you take to be your calling in life, regardless of what you take to be your gifts. So I'm going to say about that truth so we can get to our final question. And that's where we'll actually expand a bit more of what that might look like for you. But before we move on to that third question, let me just summarize this second question. What exactly is this faith that motivates work? And how does this faith motivate work? This faith is simply believing all God said. And when we believe all that God has said, we will be motivated to work, to do good deeds, to serve, And a few of the specific truths we must believe and that will motivate work are, number one, there is a judgment coming with reward for well-doing and that the outcome of that judgment is far, uh, matters far more than anything in the present. Number two, diligence in the work Christ would have you to do leads to joy and flourishing in the present. And three, the most important thing happening in the world is Christ building his church, saving sinners and maturing them in local churches, and we all have a part to play in this. And as we believe these truths, 
we'll be motivated to act as the Lord has instructed us to, to do what he's, what he wants us to do. So, now that we know what we need to believe and understand how this faith motivates our work, let's turn to the third question. What would Christ have us to do? What kinds of things is Paul referring to when he says work? The language Paul uses here is generic. And I think he intentionally does that. So I'm going to try to fill out some of what might fill this in, not because it's super specific and I want to make sure you get that, but just to help us populate some of what he generically refers to here. But he is intentionally being broad. I don't think he has a specific thing in mind. <clears throat> I think one way to kind of summarize this with, with all of its breadth is what I wrote here. Generally, it's the totality of a believer's new life in Christ, all the work involved in faithfully following Christ. Maybe, maybe saying positively what it is is helpful beyond just simply saying it's broad. But I think it will be helpful still to list out some of the things that Paul would probably put here. Some of the things Paul would probably put here. First, I'll put them up here, some specific areas to consider. Evangelism. First area of good deeds, of work, service that should be motivated by faith, evangelism. Where would you start? Well, if, you, if you're working outside the home, then start by identifying a coworker with whom you can develop a friendship. Maybe start developing that friendship on the job as you have opportunity in passing. Ask him how he's doing, say good morning, those types of things. But start looking for opportunities to get together with them outside of work. Just a little side note here. For an employer to want you to stay on task with the job you've been given and not taking long breaks to share the gospel isn't persecution. (laughs) (laughs) So be faithful in your job. Don't steal from your boss. Use the contacts you have with coworkers to to get to know them, and then meet with them outside of work, right? See what works for them. Find time to get together and continue to cultivate that friendship where you can get to know them and share the gospel with them. Maybe it's, maybe there's someone who goes out to lunch every day for a lunch. Sorry, I said that already. Goes out to lunch every day. Rather than bringing their lunch, and you can say, hey, let's one day a week, right? How about every Tuesday? Let's go get lunch together. It's time you're off the clock. It's time the boss doesn't expect you to be working can sit down and just begin building a friendship. Maybe he does bring his lunch and you go out. So you can start bringing your own lunch, right? And sit down with him in the lunchroom and have a conversation. Or you could identify a neighbor who seems friendly enough, but you can get to know a bit better. And as you approach the summer, start inviting that neighbor over for a cookout every few Saturdays. Maybe once a month, you can have a cookout every three weeks, whatever it is. Invite him over. Just spend time outside cooking over the grill, chatting with them, getting to know them, building a friendship and sharing the gospel with them. So evangelism, one area. Often that first one, evangelism, just requires just beginning to get to know people. Not not knowing where it's going to lead, just get to know people. Stop and talk to people, show an interest in them, and see where the Lord leads that. Number two, serving the church with your gifts. 
Start looking for ways, and many of you are doing this. I, I shouldn't say start, because that sounds like I'm chastising you guys. Most of you guys are very faithful and motivated by faith, laboring diligently to serve. Continue looking for ways to regularly and proactively use the gifts the Spirit has given you to serve the church. Don't wait for it to be convenient. Make a priority of it and get after it. So that's number two, serving the church with your gifts. Number three, helping others follow Jesus more faithfully. We, every one of you, if you're in Christ, have been given a gift or gifts by the Spirit for the sake of serving, and those gifts are diverse. They're unique. They aren't all the same. And so there are going to be unique ways we're going to serve. But while you all have specific gifts, you might have a gift of serving, we all are called to come alongside one another and speak the truth and love to one another, encourage one another. To say it another way, those who have more of like speaking gifts don't find that difficult. Those who have serving gifts, I'm speaking very generically in categories, sometimes would prefer to be allowed to make the coffee, take out the trash, those types of things, and not be expected to speak the truth to someone else because that just feels a little bit more difficult. And I'm appealing to you that all of us have a part to play in coming alongside one another, even if it's just one-on-one, and speaking the truth to encourage one another. doesn't have to be leading a Bible study. It simply means sometimes... After the service, you're talking to people and they're telling you about something difficult that happened that week. And simply encouraging them and pointing them back to the truths that will encourage them in the coming week. That's something we can all do. That's something that doesn't require particular gifts. Sometimes it looks like offering to get coffee with someone who shared that they are struggling to know how to handle a situation getting together with them so you can open the Bible together and help them think about what direction the scriptures give for handling their situation. Sometimes it might look like getting together with someone over a period of time for the sake of discipleship. I think probably the biggest thing I hear from people who say kind of aren't ready to do that is that they themselves feel like they need to be more mature. A couple things. One is None of us feel like we're ready (laughs) to help people, right? We're all aware that there's weaknesses. I should say, I mean, there's a sense in which as you're walking faithfully with Christ and applying truth to the areas of life, you do have a growing confidence, right? And you're eager to help people. But that doesn't mean that you don't then sometimes still feel just the weight of following Christ is hard and and applying truth is hard and the lies are pervasive, right? You, You sense that. And who's adequate for these things you feel? So don't allow that to stop you. But there is a sense in which you ought to be faithfully walking in things you're encouraging other people to do. doesn't mean perfectly, but you ought to be walking in those ways. So what's the solution? Well, if I might just kind of use an analogy here of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, Matthew 7. Remember, he didn't just say, hey, because you've got a log in your eye, just ignore everyone else's specs. Leave, leave the log, ignore the people's specs, be hypocritical to worry about their specs. So just leave it all alone. Now, what do he say? 
He said, get the log out of your eye so you can help them with their spec, right? And so analogously, I want to apply the same thing here. If you're saying, I just don't feel like I'm ready for that, we'll start growing in those ways. Grow more mature so that you can help other people. And if you're thinking, well, where do I begin? Well, then come to any of us. You can come to me. You can come to Paul. You can come to Bobby, Zach, Tuck. I forget anyone. Matt St. Clair. And just ask us how, how we can help you, whether it's just giving you some resources or whether it's meeting with you or pairing you up with someone else who can help you. And if you're thinking, yeah, I, I think I'm doing that work in my heart, like I'm, I'm doing the work of following Christ, my questions are how do I now just navigate the practical aspects of now beginning to meet with someone and speak that to them? Like I need some kind of structure. I need some sort of like something, some kind of help to do that. Here are a couple resources. If you're in that boat, I encourage you to write these down. Little book by Mark Dever called Discipling. It's a very small book. Maybe we call it a booklet. <laughs> Discipling, small little blue book. Won't cost you much and won't take long to read, but very helpful in helping you think about that. A second one, not quite as brief, but very helpful, is called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. The author's last name is Trip. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. That one will certainly include more content, a little more help than the first one, but take a little bit longer. And then the last one, I assume you could find this on our website. I apologize. That sometimes finding sermon series on our website can be torturous. <laughs> But Clay Mackey taught an equipping class on discipling others, starting at the very basics of just going up to someone and saying hi. <laughs> and if for that reason, it was helpful, because it kind of walked you through some steps very practically about how to go about speaking the truth to one another and intentionally pursuing relationships so you can do that. So it was an equipping class. I have no more info for you other than I hope you can find it. <laughs> and if you can't, ask Nate Weidman. <laughs> if multiple of you are interested in that, let me know because Nate can often like actually take, he'll find all the sermons for us and put together a playlist and then have a specific link to get to all those. And then that makes it much easier. Okay. So here are a number of areas. Here's one more I'm going to give us. Faithfulness in the domestic sphere. For you fathers and your domestic responsibilities, this work looks like not only feeding and clothing your children, but doing the hard work of deliberately raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I'm just picking examples here. For you wives and mothers and your domestic responsibilities, this work looks like putting forth your best effort to care for your family as Christ would have you to. So regarding what, what's in view here, okay, you've told us here are truths we need to believe. These Truths is we're believing them will motivate work, but what work? What should we be doing? Here are some general areas. And granted, like I said, I gave you first a generic description. There's a lot more that could fit under that generic description that I didn't put under the specific areas, but at least get you thinking about some specific areas. Give you some ideas there. So having considered what this work of love means by working through these three questions, we need to bring this to a close by reminding ourselves 
that the reason we've unpacked this phrase is because it ought to be a priority for us. Work, good deeds, service, motivated by faith in all God has said, needs to be a priority for us. And as we think about adopting this priority, we've primarily focused on adopting it as a priority for us in the sense of us being the ones who are doing the work, us being the ones who are doing the good deeds. And that's where I want to put it primarily. But as we conclude here, I want to just help you think real brief about ways that this priority will influence other areas. If grace-motivated fruitfulness is something we value highly, we'll value it not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. What is it that you value most for people? What are your priorities for them? Just think through some general categories. Your spouse. What's, most, what's your priority for your spouse? What do you value most for them? Your children. What do you value most for your children? Or your parents. When you think about your parents, what do you value most for them? Your friends, and not least of all, your fellow church members. What you value most is probably evident in how you pray for them. Ask yourself how Paul's priorities for people, specifically with today's priority, service motivated by faith, good deeds motivated by faith, how does that compare to our priorities for others? And as you think about your children, just to take one area, it's probably for many of you guys the most obvious area to pick up. While it's perfectly appropriate to want them to be healthy, (laughs) to want them to be adequately fed and clothed, eclipsing those in importance for you should be that they're believing the Lord in all he's revealed and that faith is evident in their work or good deeds. But that's just one area, right? You can, for your spouse too, is that your priority for your spouse, that they be growing in faithful work, service, good deeds, motivated by faith. All right. Questions? Thoughts? I have a question. Yes. I'm just looking at verse 3 and 4, if you mm-hmm. can help me to understand. In verse 4, is Paul saying, when he says knowing, is he saying that uh, knowing, beloved by God, your election is a motivation for this type of service? Like, your election is a motivation? Or is he saying that this type of service is an evidence of your election? So this is actually an interesting Peace. I can say definitively, no, the subject of the action of knowing is him, and Paul, uh, Silvanus and Timothy. So it's we know. We know your election. I can show you why. Okay. It's funny. I spend most time in Greek class telling students that Greek, unfortunately, let, let them down lightly. It doesn't unlock all of the interpretive questions. It helps, but doesn't solve everything. This is an area that actually does solve it, though. Yeah. It actually, the, the case used indicates for us it's not them that it's... Paul, Sabinus, and Timothy, the authors, who, who are the ones knowing that. Okay. So I'm saying that that is what's, that's a second reason they're giving thanks, because they know of their election, as evidenced in those things they're saying in verses 5 through 7. Okay. That's helpful. Yep. Sam, <clears throat> I'd just like to thank you for walking us through that. I do feel like the Christian life can become so, in some circles, and even in my own heart, just so mystical. Hmm. And just realize, like, this is lived out moment by moment. Hmm. You know, like, our belief in the truth hmm. actually produces fruit in our lives. Because we see the gap between, okay, we're saved and there's supposed to be fruit here, 
and this is just really across that bridge really well. So great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Great. Oh yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. Where is the, uh, the and I don't know why it, it kind of feels odd to me to base my motivations of obedience on future reward. Yeah. I mean maybe that's just because as fallen creatures we are we are corrupted in our minds and mm-hmm. thoughts. Where is the, the motivation to um, base our uh, obedience just purely on love for Christ rather than a future reward we may or may yeah. not get in the future. Yeah, let me think about that. I mean, certainly that is an important motivation and in fact for next time we're going to get to the, the toil, mm-hmm. the labor yeah. motivated by love. Yeah. So that's another piece um, I'm right now just because of the text trying to focus on the, the believing piece like promises that have been given to us and surely those aren't two entirely distinct things I just think that I, if, if Christ said he will reward and yeah. that rewards are coming those rewards aren't inherently bad to be motivated by because even Paul said I, I've run the race. He's, he's ready, looking forward to the crowns he yep. will receive. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, and I guess it just in my mind, that my first inclination is that's kind of materialistic and just feels and, like a sterile financial calculation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm going to be obedient to you, Jesus, because you're going to give me a reward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're the God of the universe. Yeah, yeah. And you you deserve my obedience just based on <clears throat> that fact. Mm-hmm. No, I, I get it. And I think, I think most of us can probably sympathize with that. I think where, where I'm at on that is just, I'm constantly bringing myself back to reordering, restructuring what feels right to me around what's in Scripture. And the fact that there are such motivations, such promises, means it has to be a good thing, and it ought to motivate me, right? And so however that feels, like that's a good thing. But it needs to, of course, be balanced by other things, right? I remember a number of years ago, I was working through the book of Job and actually preached like a quick one sermon overview of it. And at the very end, Job gets back double for everything he lost. It almost feels like, well, like how does that play into it, right? <laughs> so like it was a good decision. Of course he could endure all that. Um, but why, does, why is that included there? My, my guess is that that was included because the author kind of was in the present in some way helping us bring in that element that's there for everyone, even if it's not promised to everyone in the present, promise in the future that there will be kind of a repayment, a reward for those types of things. But I, I sense where you're coming from. I think it's an important piece to believe and then be complemented by the love piece, which we'll get to next time. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I was just uh, thinking about the, I can't remember which chapter, we're going through Revelation now, so you know, we cast our crowns back at his feet. Yeah. It's going to reward us, but yeah, yeah. There's a sense of which is for his glory after all anyway. Yeah, 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 totally. Totally, yep. Yeah, I think the, just to kind of summarize big picture there, sometimes we react, and appropriately, so I can sympathize with this, to a, a version, kind of a form of Christianity that seems like it's all about like 
God's going to make my life better, and I become the center of the universe. And so we want to move in the direction. That's not what Scripture says, right? Scripture has a very God-centered universe where we're simply his servants here to love and serve him. And the idea like he would give us rewards for, you know, I did only what was asked of me uh, seems strange. And yet I think in, in, this, in the course of sort of correcting a mistake, we don't want to overcorrect. I was actually talking to Pastor Phil the other day. We were talking about some, I won't get into the details, but something that was in the headlines about a particular pastor and something he said, and just the danger of always like overcorrecting, like wanting to respond to the culture, respond to that. And it's like sometimes the Bible does kind of navigate sort of an area of like bringing pieces together where we have to, may I use the terrible word in today's context, nuance to sort that out. And nuance doesn't have to be the opposite of having convictions, yeah. right? Because scripture holds those things together and you've got to hold those things together. And part of conviction is the conviction that whatever God says is true, that keeps me from jettisoning one or the other. But hold, whatever he says is true, I'm going to hold those things together. Yeah. Is there another hand going up? Nope. Okay. Yes, Sarah. I think um, John 15 about the vine and branches could be a helpful study for that. Because it talks about how abiding in his love is one of those things that helps produce fruit. Yep. Without that, like, it would be like an impersonal, almost like drive through relationship with God where you're mm-hmm. just there to get, like, what's good for you. Totally, yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's another good text. Yeah, there are certainly multiple ones like that. Yep. There's so much stuff on the love mode piece motivating our toil. That, that'll be hard even just in one sermon to kind of narrow down thinking through all the different aspects of the love there, but we'll do what we can. All right, so as we look forward, um, I know we just got back into this, but next Sunday, Tuck will be teaching us. I hate to do that just because we just got back into this, but it will help me out because next Sunday night, I'm going to be teaching uh, on Sunday night, and that I've only got so much time each week for sermon prep, and so having Tuck step in and do that, he'll serve us well, I know. So the... Toil motivated by love will be up for the week after that. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith. That you would help us to believe all that you have said, knowing that that is not some sort of pie-in-the-sky utopia. That is reality. And everything else that threatens that, that, that opposes that, is our lies. And may we live according to reality and We thank you for the way that your spirit helps to expose the lies that we so often fall prey to and pray that you would help us to more faithfully, more consistently walk in the truth and specifically with this text before us today, uh, that the outflow of that will be diligent, selfless service for your glory, for the good of all those around us that we might be a blessing to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.